Father, we love you. We thank you for the good gift it is to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ to worship you and lift up our voices. And I thank you, Lord, for your word and the sweet gift that it is. It is sufficient. It is sweet. It nourishes our souls. And it's there that we find life. Lord, I ask that you would speak through me today in a way that is glorifying to you and encouraging to those who are listening. Let your spirit be at work in our hearts. Thank you for the conviction and challenge and encouragement and the stretching that was even taking place in my own heart um, as I was preparing for this. Um, Lord, we lay this time at your feet and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31, the rich man and Lazarus, as it's commonly known. I've given it the title, The Great Reversal, and we'll talk more about that as we get closer to that text. Before we jump in, though, I do want to just briefly zoom out and then zoom back in on the text that we're in today to help build up and help support where we're going to be, what Jesus is after, and some of the relevance it has to us today. So zooming way far out, we've heard many times, this is Luke writing this gospel narrative. In chapter 1, verse 4, he says he's writing it that you, speaking of Theophilus, may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And then you can zoom in a little closer. Luke chapter 9, verse 51, all the way through Luke 19 is Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem. We've mentioned that several times as we've preached through the book of Luke. He's on his way to Jerusalem. We know what awaits him there. And we're in Luke 16, so we haven't gotten there yet, but all these teachings are on his way to Jerusalem. Zoom in a little closer yet again. Luke 15, we had three parables on the lost being found, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost prodigal son or sons. As Pastor Nick Rogers helpfully reminded us, there were two lost sons. When the shepherd found the sheep, when the woman found the coin, and when the, the son returned to the father, there was rejoicing, there was celebration. And there's even a verse in there that says that the angels in heaven are rejoicing over a sinner who repents. We're going to hear that word repent today. We're going to talk about that today. And then this is the third parable from the end of Luke 15 to where we are in Luke 16 where Jesus is teaching and he uses money in his story. We have the prodigal son who wasted his father's inheritance. We have the shrewd manager who wasted the possessions of the rich man. And then now today, we have a rich man, and he's squandering his wealth, living it up on earth, only to find out what lies ahead when his time on earth is over. Why is Jesus continuing to bring up this topic of money? Well, the Pharisees love it. Last week, Pastor Eric was preaching on some verses in between these last two parables, the one from today and the one from two weeks ago, and it says that they love money. They justify themselves before men. He says, God knows your hearts. Jesus continued, and he was saying that what man exalts here on earth, God finds to be an abomination in his sight. He's driving at the heart of the idols that the Pharisees have. And so I have a main idea of this text. I want to share it with you. I'll read it a couple times. In short, there's a lot more going on in this parable but here's what I have. Using a parable, Jesus continues to address the Pharisees' idols by talking about the use of worldly treasure and how it relates to their hearts and eternity. Let me read that again. 
Jesus, using a parable, continues to address the Pharisees' idols by talking about the use of worldly treasure and how it relates to their hearts and eternity. So as we're walking through this teaching today, I want you to have three things in mind. Money, the heart, and eternity. Money, the heart, and eternity. Yes, Jesus is teaching yet again on money. Yes, we should, as believers in Jesus Christ, be good stewards of the time, talents, and treasures he's given us. But he's talking about more than just that. There's one commentator, Daryl Bach, he said this about this parable. Not just about money, right? It's about roots, the roots of our heart. Where do they reach? What nourishes them? Are our roots tied to earthly treasure? Are we looking to line the walls of our life with things and leisure? Are we too busy to notice the screams of human desperation? Or are the roots of our spiritual life drawing from the spiritual well of God's concern and compassion, which ministers comfort in a world in pain? Now, Jesus is using repetition. I know that I often need to be reminded of things in my walk with the Lord. This is the third time Jesus is talking about money with the Pharisees. And we know that they were boiling hot and mad and ridiculed him after the parable of the shrewd manager because they loved it. And he's not quite gotten through to them yet. And there's something else that we're going to hear probably five to six times today. Let me go ahead and just lay this out now before we begin. When we talk about salvation, because we're talking about eternity today, there is no other way to the Father except through the Son. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that one can be saved. Not money, not heritage, not works, not marriage, not anything else. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In case you hear that again and think, did Taylor not realize he already said that? At least six or seven times you're going to hear that today. So there'll be an outline on the screen. We have three sections, the great reversal, and then the first and second pleas and responses. I do want to just mention one other outline that might be helpful for you in the days ahead. There's a brother by the name of Thabiti and Yawibe, and he has a very simple outline that I would encourage you to maybe store away in your memory bank. Um, two people... Two places, two pleas, and two problems. A little alliteration there to, to help you remember what's going on in this story. Two people, two places, two pleas, and two problems. And with that, we'll turn to our first section, the great reversal. This is verses 19 through 23, and I'm going to begin simply by reading 19 through 21. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate, was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. No less than five things that we can see as Jesus is trying to introduce these two characters and their positions here on earth and their status. He's beginning to show a contrast between these two men. And again, this parable starts exactly like the parable of the shrewd manager. There was a rich man. I almost changed the title from The Great Reversal to, in case you didn't hear me the first time. <laughs> so the luxurious life of the rich man, five things we see, he's rich. He's clothed in purple. To buy purple garments in that time, it was an expensive process to dye garments purple. So it showed your wealth if you could afford those and wear those. And then it says he had fine linen. If you look at the Greek there, it's talking about his undergarments. 
If we were to uh, be a little generous and embellish a little bit, it's Mr. Fancy Pants over here in his fancy house with his fancy gate and his fancy things and his fancy underwear. <laughs> he feasted, and not just feasted, but sumptuously. And he feasted sumptuously every day. And then at his gate was laid a poor man. Don't skip over that. It was very uncommon for a man to have a gate. It's likely referring to a large estate, a pretty big pad, so to speak. Jesus is knowing that at the heart of the Pharisees, they stick out their chest and justify themselves for lots of different reasons, but on the thrones of their heart, there's an idol called money. They also think it relates to God's favor. If you had a lot of it, you had a lot of God's favor. If you were poor like Lazarus, then you didn't have God's favor. Jesus is about to turn that upside down. If that's what you think, wealth means you have more of God's favor. Let me give you a picture of the most wealthy man that we can think of in this day and time. Not just a little wealthy, extremely wealthy. And then there's the contrast, the not so lavish lifestyle of Lazarus. Five things we see, he's a poor man. He's laid at the rich man's gate, covered with sores, and and the dogs are licking them. Not only does he have material poverty, but very likely physical poverty as well. The fact that he was laid there, likely someone had to bring him there to be able to beg. He's lying there at the gate, not just with some scrapes and bruises, covered with sores, likely not having the physical ability to shoo the dogs away that are licking them. And then listen to this. He didn't desire to be invited into the house He wasn't desiring the leftovers. He was desiring to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Completely different levels here. The rich man and Lazarus from a worldly perspective. The only thing going for him is that he has a name. The rich man doesn't. Don't skip over that. Some people then argue that this means this isn't a parable because Jesus never names a character in a parable. There's other reasons they would say that. I'm actually still on team parable and would say that this is the only parable where he does use someone's name and he can do that if he wants. And I love it. It's the, it's the poor man who has a name. He's known. And then enters in the great reversal, verses 22 and 23. <clears throat> Read with me. The poor man, notice that we've already begun the reversal. We started with the rich man and then Lazarus. Verse 22 We start with the poor man. We're starting with Lazarus. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, or your translations may read Abraham's bosom. And then the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Before we jump into their lives after their time on earth, I just want to point out the obvious that both of these men die. Their earthly contrast is further expounded upon by the fact that Lazarus, there's no mention of a proper burial, but it does say that the rich man was buried. Remember, this isn't just a parable about money, but about eternity. Hebrews 9, 27, and just as is is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. This is not meant to manipulate, to work upon your emotions, I do just want to tell you that if what the Bible says is true and we believe that it is, that there comes a day when we will all breathe our last. I don't think I need to convince anybody of that here today. 
But some believe in reincarnation, some that they're buried and the worms eat them, some that there's opportunities after you're dead to be able to still make it to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that one can be saved. But there comes a day when our time on earth is over where we will stand before the judgment throne of God. And there's no other way for our names to be written in the book of life apart from repenting of our sins and trusting in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior to hear the word and to respond to it. And I know that sometimes people like to argue, oh, they're using scare tactics to get people to profess faith in Jesus, to scare them away from hell. That's not what I'm doing today in mentioning these things. We see that there is a reality that judgment is to come after our time on earth is over. So for the first time today, I would encourage if there are any folks who are here today that haven't professed faith in Jesus to listen to what this text says. I would encourage you to hear the words and to respond and to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus as your Savior. And let's look at the two situations that these men are in. Two people, two places. And it says in verse 23, And in Hades, being in torment, he, the rich man, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. The King James Version just says hell, but more translations in the English actually use the word Hades. We're not going to go down that trail very far today. Let me just say a couple things. The main idea is that they have now landed with two different eternities. Lazarus was in torment and pain on earth, and now he's comforted in intimate fellowship at Abraham's side. The rich man lived it up, and now he's going to spend eternity apart from God forever. John MacArthur says in the New Testament, the usage of Hades is just always referring to the place of the wicked prior to the final judgment of hell. And then he expounds upon this topic of Hades and says that Christ pictured it as a place where the unspeakable torment of hell has already begun. And among other miseries are the unquenchable flames of fire. And then listen to these last two. An accusing conscience fed by undying memories of lost opportunity. And what I would say is the worst of them all, irreversible separation from God forever, as well as everything else that is good. It's not a good place that the rich man has found himself in. And let's look at Lazarus. It says that he's at Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. The reason that I bring that to light, we're going to talk about this now. A couple scripture references that we'll put before you. When it's talking about him being at Abraham's side, intimate fellowship with Abraham in the new kingdom. And doesn't specifically say anything here about feasting, but let me read a couple passages to you. And this is meant to be an encouragement for us as believers in Jesus Christ and to further exemplify the great reversal that's taken place. Matthew 8, 11 and 12. After Jesus had heard about the faith of the centurion... I hope that you've heard that story before. A man of great faith asking for Jesus to perform a miracle in healing a servant. He hears of this great faith and he says in verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sounds a little similar to the story from today, right? Let's continue to drive this idea home. Revelation 19, 6 through 9. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Starting in verse 7. 
Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride, that's us, his people, his church, his bride has made herself ready and it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen. Have we heard that already this morning? Bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God, Lazarus on earth, lying at the gate, longing for the scraps that fell from this man's table, covered with sores. Now in intimate fellowship with Abraham, going back to that passage in in Matthew, reclining at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and now being able to be for all of eternity with God around his throne, worshiping him with other brothers and sisters from every tribe and tongue and nation, part of the marriage supper of the lamb, longing for scraps to fall off a rich man's table on earth, and now getting to be a part of the marriage supper of the lamb after his time on earth is over. Can you have a greater great reversal? I would say no. What do, we, what do we do with this first section? And what do we not do? And what are some things that we should highlight? And I would say first, we should not think that all rich people go to hell, nor should we think that all rich people go to heaven. Similarly, on the flip side of that coin, we shouldn't believe that a poor person would automatically go to heaven or that they would go to hell. None of those things are true. Read the New Testament. That's not, what, not what's taught. But it is important to note here, remember Jesus diving into the heart of the Pharisees, a love of money, ridiculing Jesus for teaching on it. It's an idol of their hearts. They think they have God's favor because of it. And Jesus is like, okay, if you have God's favor because of riches, let me tell you this story about a rich man, the richest man that we can think of. And now look where he's landed. In Hades, separated from God forever. This would have boiled the blood of the Pharisees for many, many reasons. One, because it goes contrary to what they believed. But then also, they probably are realizing that Jesus is talking about them. With their chests stuck out and their noses up, they glory in their worldly treasure and their self-righteous knowledge of all the laws. So much so that as their noses get lifted up, their eyes can no longer see the needs of those people around them. And Jesus is calling it out. Yes, one of the takeaways of this is that we should use our worldly treasures, time, talents, and treasures to the glory of God for kingdom-building purposes. Absolutely, we've heard that time and time again. Just rewind a few chapters to the the story on hospitality. But but here's what I I want us to think on. Before we too quickly dismiss this and say, well, I don't have an issue on, on the throne of my heart. It's not money that's there. Okay, maybe we don't believe that money gets us into heaven, which it doesn't. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone that one is saved. Maybe it's not money that gets us to heaven, but, and maybe it's not money that causes us to stick our chests out, but are there other things in our lives that cause us to justify ourselves before men or cause us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought? And this is just a few, a few things. The Lord has convicted me personally this week of an area in my life where I see this. But maybe it's where you went to school or where you are at school or the degrees that you have or the amount of theology that you know or the letters before your name or at the bottom of your email after you have your signature, it shows where you work and what your title is. None of those things are wrong, by the way. 
until they become idols and reasons for us to put ourselves before and above others and worshiping them instead of an almighty God, what are the things that we justify ourselves by that God would find to be an abomination in his sight? Maybe that's something that you and a friend or your family or your small group can talk about this week. Yes, Jesus is diving at the hearts of the Pharisees and he wants his people's hearts as well and all of it. That leads us to our our first plea and our first response, verses 24 through 26. I'll begin simply by reading verse 24, the rich man's first plea. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. Several things that we're going to work through quickly here. He knows Abraham's name and he knows Lazarus's name. Interesting. Right? It's not just, hey, you over there with that guy over on your side, will you send him to cool my tongue? Never even addresses Lazarus, but appeals to Abraham. And not only does he appeal to him, but Father Abraham, have mercy on me. If my money didn't get me over there at Abraham's side, maybe my family heritage will. A Jew, a chosen race, that'll get me into heaven. That'll get me some mercy. Listen to what we see in, in Matthew 3, 7 through 9. John the Baptist, as he's baptizing. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Galatians speaks incredibly contrary to that idea. It says, Galatians 3, 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It's not our parents' faith, our grandparents' faith. Hey, my dad was a pastor. Hey, my grandmother was a missionary. Hey, my cousin has been in full-time ministry. That doesn't get you into heaven either. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that one is saved. And not only does he appeal to him as Father Abraham, what comes after that? Send Lazarus, as if Lazarus is his servant boy. What a prideful, arrogant man on earth, living so lavishly, didn't even have the wherewithal or the heart to help this man in need that laid right outside his gate. And now, after his time on earth is over, his heart and his mind are still wicked. Send Lazarus to come and serve me. He probably was served in his fancy house while on earth. And he's assuming that that's still going to take place now. Send Lazarus. Why? Uh, To dip the tip of his finger in water to come and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish. And we've already talked about the anguish that is coming for those who don't trust in Christ. And he's saying, "Come come and cool my tongue. Send Lazarus over here. I'm in anguish. Abraham's response, verse 25, he simply says, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus and like men are bad things, but now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. Abraham is essentially reminding him and us of this great reversal that's taken place. And it's not just that it's been reversed, it's been exponentially reversed. Create the richest man you can think of on earth and one of the poorest. 
And it pales in comparisons to the contrast of the two men now. Feasting at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Worshiping God around his throne for all of eternity. That's what Lazarus has to look forward to. And, and the rich man, the worldly pleasures are over. And it's a life of torment and anguish now. But he continues on in verse 26. There's more. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may come across from there to us. Big thing to remember here is that it's fixed. A great chasm. It's been firmly established. It's been fixed for all of eternity. No do-overs. Let me pause there for a second, a little illustration. I love sports. I love playing them more than I do watching them. I enjoy watching as well, though. I've played all sorts of sports growing up. Uh, hands down, without a doubt, no questions asked, the worst sport in, in, uh, in all of my endeavors over the years is golf. But there are still a couple things I love about it. A bright, blue, sunny day out with your buddies playing some golf. One thing I really enjoy is on the rare occasion... When the head of the club, the driver, somehow lines up with the ball, I won't say miraculously, but really close, in such a way that it hits it and it, it goes straight and actually lands on the fairway. Now, when I pull back, I swing like I'm trying to blow the ball up. And I know that probably contributes to how bad I am, but I love it. I play like once a year, so on 18 holes, one ball just sent out is enough to make me want to go again the next year. But one other thing I love more than that is this thing called a mulligan. I don't know if you know what those are. If you don't, in short, it's a do-over. So when I get up and I rear back and on the rare occasion it goes straight, on the norm it's going this way or that way or in the water, in a creek, in the woods, oftentimes on the wrong fairway as golfers are coming by, ricocheting off trees. I usually take about 10 balls with me and go home with about two and that's a true story. It lands somewhere, and I have no clue who, where it is or how it got there, and I just say, hey, no big deal, mulligan, go to my bag, grab another ball, put it on the tee, and swing away. Typically finds itself in the same spot, not on the fairway. But hey, when I get there, one of the first things I ask on a day of golf, how many mulligans do we get? I prefer 18, one per hole. That's just me. <laughs> now, like I said earlier, for all you golf connoisseurs, don't lift your nose up at me. All right, I enjoy a, a good mulligan. The reason I say that, though, to come back to something way more serious. There comes a day when our time on earth is over, we breathe our last breath. We will one day, all of us, if what the Bible says is true and we believe that it is, we'll stand before the judgment throne of God. There are no do-overs, no mulligans, no, look how much money I had. Look who my grandparents were. I went to church. I read my Bible. Look at my heritage. Let me, let me get a redo on that, God. There's a chasm that's been fixed in this parable emphasizing the eternality of the decisions that are made here on earth and how that affects our futures after our time on earth is over. Again, what do we do with this? For believers in Jesus Christ, rest in the fact that the work has been accomplished and you didn't have to do any of it. It was Christ's work on the cross. You've been reconciled and redeemed through the blood of our Savior, our Messiah, our King. That's awesome. 
Even if you tried to work for it, you couldn't. And again, for the second time, not, not meant to manipulate, but to say, if, if that's not a decision that you've made in your life, don't keep putting it off like the rich man. Hey, I'll get to that next week. Or that's garbage, I don't believe that. There comes a time when we stand before the judgment throne of God. And this leads us to our second plea from the rich man. 27 through 31, we'll begin with verse 27 and 28. And he, the rich man, said, Well, then I beg you, Father, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. He's now begging. Okay, if I can't appeal to Father Abraham, my money didn't get me there. I can't get Lazarus sent over here to cool my tongue. Well, let me, let me get Lazarus sent to go warn my family. Yet again, arrogance here. Send him. Doesn't even address Lazarus. But send him to my father's house. Why? Because he's got five brothers who are living it up, potentially, whether it be for worldly gain or whatever other means. They're living in such a way that they're headed to the same place that the rich man is, and he knows it. Send them there to warn my five brothers so that they don't make it to this place of torment and judgment and eternal separation from God. And listen to what Abraham says. In the correspondences and the things that Abraham says, this is the shortest response that he gives. Ten words. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They've got Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Essentially, no. We're not going to send them to go and warn your brothers. They've got Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. One of the great things about expository preaching just last week, Eric was in Luke and he was preaching and this phrase came up, Moses and the prophets, helpfully explained. Hey, think of this as the Old Testament. He's referring that they have the scriptures. They have the Old Testament. Let them hear them. They have them. Let them hear them. And not just hear like an audible hearing, but hear and respond. That is the warning that they need and that will prevent them from landing where you are, rich man. But they've got Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the Old Testament. They have Scripture. And guys, this is an application point for this section. Scripture is sufficient. It's sufficient for salvation. If it's not money that gets us there, our heritage that gets us there, our works or our merits that get us there, it's by hearing and responding to the Word of God. And we've got it. What a gift that that is. But he doesn't just say, let them hear them in the sense like let them just audibly hear it, right? Or else we should all download Bible audio apps and play them as loud as we can at the grocery store and let people just hear. That doesn't save either. It's a hearing that involves listening and then responding. And part of that response is that repentance, recognition of the need of a Savior. The word is sufficient for salvation, we think of Romans 10, 14 through 17, a very classic text. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's our feet. Verse 17, so faith comes from what? Hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. They need to hear the words and take heed to their warning and then respond. That's what your brothers need to do is what Abraham's telling him. 
one other point I'd like to share, maybe not a highlight here, but definitely worth noting. There are brothers and sisters around the world that don't have Moses and the prophets. 3.2 billion people with little to no access to the gospel around the world that do not have this. They need those beautiful feet to go and share that good news so they have the opportunity to hear and to respond. And that's us that we take that good news to them and proclaim it and plead and urge them to consider what they're hearing and to turn to Jesus and respond. One last section of scripture, I won't read through this all, jot this down, continues to emphasize what we're hearing. John 8, 37 through 44, I'm just gonna read some select verses here. Verse 37, Jesus says, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham. We've heard that a little bit this morning already. I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. Verses 43 and 44. Why do you not understand what I say, Jesus asks? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. And again, not just saying you can't stand to hear my word. It's that you've heard it And you don't like what you hear, like the Pharisees. God's word is sufficient for salvation, brothers and sisters. And it's a sweet gift that we have it and a responsibility for us to share it as well. Romans 1, 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. And the rich man doesn't like the response. He continues on with Abraham. And he says, in verse 30, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Continuing to show this man's arrogance. Send Lazarus to cool my tongue. Send Lazarus to go and warn my brothers. Now I'm going to tell you you're wrong, Abraham. No, Abraham. If you send someone from the dead, then they will repent. Continuing to show this brother's arrogance, but also the knowledge that he has. He knows what his brothers need to do to avoid being where he is. They need to repent. And he knew it as well, but chose not to do it for whatever reasons. Didn't believe it, didn't make time for it, kept putting it off, or continued to pursue the shiny things of this world and not pursuing Christ. Abraham's response in 31 is is pretty similar. He said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone's raised from the dead. He's saying no right back to him. They need to hear Moses and the prophets. And I know you're probably sitting there thinking, oh man, someone being raised from the dead, like that would be pretty convincing. There's another man named Lazarus in the New Testament, not to be confused with this one. John 11 Lazarus raised from the dead. We won't read through it all. Jesus raises Lazarus and everybody believes, right? Now it says that some who saw believed in him. But what do they do after that? John eleven fifty three. 53. Everybody didn't believe. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. That's what a sign of somebody being raised from the dead did for some of those folks. And we also know about someone else who is going to die. Jesus Christ coming to earth as man. Not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. 
And we know what happens. He's on this journey to Jerusalem. He's going to die. A brutal death, and he's going to hang on a cross, and then he's going to be buried, and he's going to rise. And everybody believes after that, right? No. They form a plan, want to pay off the guards and make a cover-up story to try to just wash it away. It's not a sign that we need. It's, a, it's the words of life that we find in Scripture. Scripture is sufficient. Write this down. Scripture over experience. Now, sure, God could do miraculous things in someone's life as part of their story in coming to saving faith. I, I have no doubt in that. But it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that someone is saved. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. Some application here. It's not a sign that we need. We need God's word. Second Peter 1.19 is so encouraging and and sweet, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But remember, not everyone has that sweet word. They don't have the scriptures. Yes, general revelation, but that is not what we're talking about when we're talking about the words of life. And that concludes our account of the rich man and Lazarus and the great reversal. But I want to spend some time as we land the plane recapping some of the highlights of today, some of the application points and what do we do and what do we take away from this. I'll say it one last time. It is indeed by no other means that one is saved. It is by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, that someone will be saved. And for those of you who have done that, for those of us that have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus, be excited and hopeful for what's to come at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'll be honest and humbly share with you and confess, I had to ask the Lord to excite my heart in a way that it should be, to look forward to that day. I can get caught up in the things of this world and not think about that. I can, go, I can go a week easy and not think about the marriage supper of the Lamb and what's to come for us as believers. And again, one last time to those of you who may not have taken heed to these words, I would urge you, plead with you, ask you to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. And if you don't understand what it means when we're saying by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, we'd love to talk to you about that. Whether it's on your way home, someone who invited you or at lunch, or if you want to stick around after the service, if you're like, I don't really understand that. I want to learn more about this Jesus. I do feel like I've tried to work hard for my salvation. Would love to talk with you more about that. Feel free to come up after the service is over. But would encourage you to repent of your sins and trust in Christ today. Scripture is sufficient. Feast on it. That's where we're fed here on earth. This is where we find life. Man can't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Feast on it. Continue to pray for and think about those around the world that don't have it and how you might be able to be a part of getting it to them. And remember that it's not a sign that guarantees that someone would come to faith in Christ. They need the word of God. And to bring this back to the Pharisees, I know I talked about this once already, but in case you didn't write it down earlier, I want to encourage you to think on this now. Jesus was getting at their hearts. They loved money. 
You were self-righteous, prideful, boastful, chests out, noses up, eyes closed to the needs of those around them. Yes, 100%, write it down, application point. Be good stewards of the time, talents, and treasures that God's entrusted to you while here on earth. Build up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. Remember Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Are there idols on the thrones of our heart that only God belongs on, things that cause us to stick our chest out and lift up our heads in an arrogant way that God would say is an abomination in his sight. And if you, through the Spirit's work in you, realize there are some of those things, repent of them. Confess those things and know that if we confess those sins to the Lord, those sins are washed away because of the blood that Christ has shed for us on the cross. I don't want you to leave today with weightiness on your shoulders like, oh man, I got to go do stuff now. Just like you couldn't do anything to earn your salvation, I don't want you to leave thinking you have to go do now to keep your salvation. That is not what Scripture teaches either, but there is a reality that believers should be living transformed lives that look different than the lives of people around the world. It should change the way we think and eat and exercise and enjoy hobbies and recreate and and give and serve and talk and seek employment and encourage. It it should affect every aspect of our lives. That's called bearing fruit, (laughs) right? When someone is saved, those roots that we talked about earlier go into the living water. Our hearts and our souls and our lives are nourished by God, and it brings forth spiritual fruit for his glory. That fruit's not what saves you. It's evidence that you have been saved. I would just implore you, encourage you, us, myself as well, Luke 3, 8 and Matthew 3, 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, showing that your lives have been transformed here on earth. And that's where we'll close for today. I want to pray for us that the Lord would allow us to take these words and live them out in a way that's pleasing to him. God, we love you. We are yours. We thank you so much for the gift of your word that we have heard it. And many in here, most in here, have not only heard, but they have received and recognized their need to repent of their sins and trust in you as their savior. We praise you for that. That's not anything we could have done on our own. Thank you, God, for that good gift. And for those in here who have not, Lord, please be at work on their hearts that you would put men and women in their lives that could walk alongside them to continue to counsel them in the word and to share more about this good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the life-changing, reconciling, redeeming work of Christ on the cross that can change their eternity forever. Lord, let us not be weighed down thinking we need to do things to earn salvation or to keep it. And we praise you for the abundant amount of grace you've blessed us with in drawing us to yourself as your children. And we look forward to the day that we get to worship you around the throne with brothers and sisters from all around the world, every tribe, tongue, and nation, to worship you and enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb where there will be no longer pain or sickness or longing for scraps to fall from a table or sores on our bodies that are licked by dogs or cancer or any other sin or any other illness but we get to be in your presence forever in the new kingdom and the new heaven. And we look forward to that day. Help us to long for it, Lord. And we love you and pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.